Hi, I'm Ron Gilbert, and welcome to the Thimbleweed Park Stand-Up Meeting Podcast. And I am joined by David Fox. Hey there. And Gary Winnick. Hello. And uh, this week we're going to do a very quick uh, stand-up meeting, and then we're going to get on to reader questions, which is, I guess, probably the most interesting part of the podcast. So let's quickly start with David. Last week I've been wiring up some more rooms for Mark. I got some relatively simple rooms. I think these are ones that he's doing pretty fast, and they're pretty easy to do, except for getting lighting and everything right. So that's it's always fun to see those come to life. And that's mostly it, adding a few sound effects um right now and i think that's about all gary uh continuing to work on animation been going through a list of characters that we have for the first part of the game which is what takes place particularly in the town area so working on those doing a few special case animations to go along with that and just looking at uh, a few more things like the icons and some of the ancillary kickstarter materials but that's about it okay good uh, I've been uh, just doing a lot of bug fixing and stuff that has come in, a little bit of work on dialogues, and I spent yesterday writing an animation editor because I got really tired of uh, trying to deal with all the animation just in Photoshop file. It's not working yet, but probably needs another couple of days. So that's uh, that's what I did. That's a very quick stand-up meeting. So now we'll get on to the questions that readers had posted, and we'll just kind of start at the top of the list. And I believe the first one uh, is for Gary. This is from Natalija. What is your favorite cartoon and why? Well, right now, my favorite cartoon on Adult Swim is Rick and Morty. It's created by Justin Rowland and Dan Harmon. Uh, I really enjoy that. Uh, I recommend everybody check it out. Uh, I won't really go into a description of it, but it's uh, a lot of fun. And then I'm also partial to the Max Fleischer Superman cartoon, something that's really a blast from the past. So those are my two favorite cartoons right now, both from the standpoint of story as well as sort of just execution. Yeah, I think I think Rick and Morty is probably my favorite as well. I didn't know Dan Harmon did that. Yeah. I don't know why I didn't know that, but I did not know that. Parks and Rec. Yeah, yeah, no, no. Dan Harmon uh, was Community. No oh, Community, okay. Yeah, not Parks and Rec. Sorry, cut, cut that. <laughs> yeah, I will do, Gary. Yeah, I, I know, I know. <laughs> uh, the other cartoon I like, and I, I still, I still really enjoy watching The Simpsons. You know, I don't care how bad The Simpsons gets, I still enjoy watching it. And for me, I guess I, Rick and Morty too. That's the only one that I've been watching. Lately, and I forgot that it's been on because my DVR hasn't been recording it, so I have to catch up now for last season. But I think it was hilarious. Derek Reisdorf, is the game still set in 1987 or thereabouts, and are you making it a point to cram into the game a bunch of humorous references to pop culture and the technology of that era? The answer is yes, it does take place in 1987. In fact, there's a title card that comes up that says 1987. I won't tell you anything more about that. And we are making a concentrated effort to make sure that we're staying as true to that uh, era as our foggy minds can remember. We're definitely... Um, wanting to convey that sensibility of sort of that era right between Maniac Mansion and Monkey Island. So we're definitely planning on it taking place in 1987 specifically. Yeah, some people have asked why 1987. And that's I think that's the date that Maniac Mansion was released. So that's Even why, it actually, that's why yeah. we chose that, uh, chose that date. Vegeta Man. Are there any other worldly, non-human creatures making an appearance in Thimbleweed Park, i.e. things along the lines of Purple Tentacle? Well, the answer to that is um, that's 
kind of a maybe. It's somewhat going to be open to interpretation. We will have a lot of strange-looking things floating around Thimble, um, the ThimbleCon. So I'm going to you know, be somewhat vague about it, and there will definitely be things that appear to be otherworldly. Whether or not there are actually otherworldly entities or not, I'm, not gonna, I'm going to sort of save that because it could be a spoiler. And uh, right now I'm going to say uh, you'll have to wait and see, but there will be things that definitely look like they're from some other place, but may or may not be. GV, the Monkey Island and Loom backgrounds and close-ups are so well done, I want to ask if they were drawn and painted originally on paper and copied, not scanned, later on a computer monitor with a mouse. How was the dithering done, by hand or by depaint feature? They are so well executed that it is difficult to think that they were done on a monitor without any previous art on paper. Or maybe I'm just a bad artist who can't do that because I tried it. Um, well... In actuality, everything during that period of time, everywhere between Maniac Mansion through um, the close of Monkey Island 1, was all done by hand. We were not using – we did not have scanners. Um, we did not use scanner technology. We basically went ahead and just drew everything by hand on monitors. Now, the close-ups in Monkey Island were drawn by Ian McKegg, so that kind of explains some of those things. Also, regarding the dither – on screens. Um, the way I did dither was pretty much by hand, but in deep paint, I would sometimes create a brush that was a dithered pattern and go ahead and stamp that repeatedly, depending on how uniform that pattern was. So long story short, everything by hand. Um, and in fact, in the case of Thimbleweed Park, most everything is being done directly by hand and not being scanned at all. I mean, I did do some concepts early on, that, but none of it was actually scanned as art that was um, a starting point for an actual finished graphic in the game. All of the stuff that was done by hand was just reference that I went ahead and then looked at or marked in reference that he went ahead and looked at, but all of it's being done directly just in the computer, no scanning involved. Okay, I'm just going to scroll my screen down here. TM, on your early podcast, you were talking about Ken Macklin doing the box art and possibly writing a blog post. Is there any information about that, and are you going to show his art on your blog? The answer to that is yes. Uh, Ken has been working with us. We kind of slowed that whole process down because we were going through some um, visual um, evolution, both with bringing Mark on and also just sort of redesigning some of the characters like Dolores and some of those things. So we kind of slowed that down. We're probably going to start picking that up again now because we've gotten past those uh, graphic decisions. So Ken will um, shortly be starting back up on the box cover again. And also he has agreed that he will write a blog post about his process. So that is all something that we'll probably see in the next, I'm, I'm going to say, certainly before the end of the year. All right, David, you want to take the next one? Yes. So I have one here from J-A-A-P. J I think we answered one from you last time. Question is, I was wondering how, many, how much each of you guys are autodidact in your particular game developing skills. I had to look up that word. It means self-taught. Yeah, I did, I did not know what that word meant. And we just self-taught ourselves what that word meant. Mm -hmm. um, and in what way you have done relevant studies and or courses related to programming, drawing, writing stories, etc. For me, yes, so I'm self-taught 
there there was no coursework or anything else back when we were first starting to do games. So it was all taught by looking at other games, playing other games, looking at other game source code, figuring out what felt good, talking to other people, our peers, basically, to polish what it was and just kind of figuring out what we wanted to do together. You know, there, there are definitely some coding books I wrote or read, actually I read way back, but there was no book, for example, on Scum um, I think I did some of the early documentation and then turned it over to, to another guy, to Wallace. So it's all taught as we went along. Uh, certainly in my case, there was no computer graphics classes even around at the time. I mean, I think there might have been some computer programming classes, but the whole graphics part of it was pretty much self-taught. I, I learned how to do that by like playing around on grid paper when I was looking at, at uh, actually at arcade games, which I think is something Ron did as well. And I managed to get a job at Atari where I worked for about a year before I went to work at Lucasfilm. But all of my uh, artistic uh, approach and everything that I did was all completely self-taught because for the most part, it, certainly at Lucasfilm too, we kind of made the stuff up as we went. We had to create our own tools. We had to figure out how to do this stuff kind of on the fly. Did you go to art school? No, I went to... So you have, you have, you have no formal art training? Actually, I went to Monterey Peninsula College and I got a degree. It's, it was a, a community college and I got a degree in business and in art. But I was planning to go into business of some sort <laughs> and go figure what happened. Yeah, I'm totally self-taught too. I mean, when I started working there, you know, colleges didn't really know anything about this. And the programming courses at colleges were directed, you know, for large mainframe computers writing COBOL programs, certainly not game stuff. So I am... Um, I'm completely self-taught as well. Yeah, I, I took a couple of classes when I was in college, but pretty much no relevance. I mean, I took one in Fortran, and I remember using either paper tape or punch cards. This <laughs> is really old. Yeah, I, I took a class when I was in college in COBOL, and we had to hand in our assignments on punch cards. <laughs> yeah, that's crazy. I, I will say this. Schools now offer courses in you know, computer game design and stuff like that. I'd be real curious at kind of what the actual, you know, success rate of people, because I don't know if you can actually get a degree from a college and then go get a computer, you know, game design job. I mean, unless you're, you know, you have to kind of start out with lower echelons or become an indie developer or something. I don't think uh, if somebody came to me with a degree, it would matter. You know what I mean? It would really matter what they had done, you know, kind of on their own. So I'm not sure, I'm sure how helpful that stuff is on a level right now. Maybe more so than I think because I'm not familiar with those kind of courses. Yeah, I think it is. I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of colleges that are very you know geared towards doing uh, you know game design and game programming stuff, and and I think those are actually quite useful. They're more like trade schools, you know, more than they are uh, you know like four year colleges where you're getting a really broad edu education. But a lot of you know standard four year colleges are you know offering a lot of degrees and stuff in you know, game design and whatnot. So I think that's becoming a lot more common now. Okay, well, we have a question. I keep on seeing both last time and this time from a bunch of different people, and they're all kind of related to whether there are any plans to open source the engine or open source the game or license the engine or license the game or whatever. Yeah, I mean, open sourcing the engine, that, that is something that, I'm, that I would like to do at some point. It's a lot of work to open source something you know because you don't just dump a bunch of code on github and 
be done with it. There's a lot of work involved in that. And it's certainly not something that would happen before the game shipped. If it was something that happened, it would be it would be after the game shipped. Um, we're not going to open source the game itself, the actual code to the game. You know, that's that's going to kind of remain proprietary. But the engine is something that we that we could open source later down the road. That's very possible. Would you consider opening open sourcing maybe one room or something? Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, I mean, it might be worth just releasing, you know, a small section so people have a like a demo, you know, kind of a samples of of how to do stuff. But that's not that's not so much open sourcing, you know, as it is just making that stuff available to people. Because I think open sourcing has a lot of implications about the licensing of it. That if you open source something, you know, people can use it, you know, to do to do what they want with it. Okay, next question is, uh, tell tell me more about Eric Wilmunder. His name is present in a lot of the old LucasArts adventure games. Uh, yeah, Eric Eric Wilmunder, I shared an office with him when I first started at Lucasfilm. Uh, he was working on the Atari 800 version of Coronas Rift, and I was hired to do the Commodore 64 version of the game. So he and I shared an office and you know became really good friends. And when I did the SCUM system, uh, there were some pieces of the scum system that uh, we used from the Habitat game that um, Chip Morningstar and Randy Farmer were working on, and Eric was one of the main programmers on that. And so we shared a lot of technology, you know, the animation system and some other parts of Habitat into Scum. And then when uh, Scum was ported to the to the IBM PC, you know, Eric really headed up, you know, that port to that stuff. So. You know, Eric was really intimately involved in the early days of the SCUM system, and he pretty much did all of the graphics backend work on the early SCUM system once it went to the PC. It's like I focused on the language and the interpreter, and you know, he focused mostly on the graphics uh, backend of the SCUM system. I wanted to say that Eric has a website, wilmunder.com, W-I-L-M-U-N-D-E-R, so you could check out his personal stuff there. And I know he's somewhere on LinkedIn. Um, and that, this question is from Zach Phoenix McCracken. All right. Next question is actually for you, David. Here's, here's a question from Andy Hall. Did you come up with all the puzzles, jokes as you were planning the game, or are you using ideas you've collected over time? If the latter, what is the longest you've held on to an idea before using it? Well, there's this idea when I was three years old. <laughs> My answer to this would be that it's really a combination of both. I mean, there's our intense brainstorming sessions where we had lots of ideas and puzzles and jokes that would kind of come out. For me, as I'm actually doing coding, you know, like I might see something that Ron wrote in a script or in a dialogue, which I steal and use later on in a funny way or, or reference, or there might be new art from Gary or, or Mark that inspires some funny gag or puzzle. I mean, that was basically what happened with the microwave in Maniac Mansion. It wasn't planned, and it just kind of hit me when I saw the the artwork and knowing that we had a hamster. So that happened very spontaneously, and I'm sure there'll be things that get added to the game all the way down to lockdown. It also proves that you're a sick man, David Fox. <laughs> yeah, I think I think things like jokes and stuff are, you know, some of it, like David was saying, that happens during the brainstorm meetings, and some of it just happens. I mean, even even now, it's like I'll just be playing the game, 
just you know kind of testing some code and i'll see something i'll see a part of a dialogue and, and something will just hit me and i'll just go in and edit the dialogue or add a joke or whatever so i think i think that stuff just happens um very spontaneously i think the longest i've ever held on to an idea was probably the cave which you know I, I had that idea for a game before i even came to lucasfilm you know and i didn't make it until i guess 2010 so it was been a while to hold on to an idea i think this is part of the polish process where you keep on polishing really the script and the story until it feels like it's there. Yeah, and I think jokes, you know, I think really good jokes, you're also feeding off of people. You know, it's it's hard. At least I find it very hard to sit in a room all alone and, and think of jokes and think of writing. I think I have to bounce stuff off people and kind of see what people's reaction is, and that helps fine-tune things a little bit. So I think it is a very iterative process. So Christian has a question. He says, how does the new save system work? Uh, that's, I mean, that's a very complicated answer. And I was planning on writing a blog post about it in a couple of weeks, just detailing the save system, because that is something that I had, it was very worried about uh, getting the save system into the game because it can be a lot of work. And it's very difficult because it's not really just about saving a bunch of variables off. And it's, you know, it's not about whether they're saved as JSON files or binary files or whatever. It's really about being able to iterate through a lot of information that can be deep, deep down inside the engine. So, you know, it's not just taking some variables, you know, have you picked up this or have you gone to this location? Uh, you know, since our, our engine is all multitasking, there could be a lot of different threads working at the same time and all those threads have to be iterated through and the state of those threads and the stacks for those threads they all have to be you know saved out and then reconstructed on load and then there's also the sound system you know what audio is playing where is it in the audio at that moment all that stuff have to be saved and it's just it's not that any one of those tasks is particularly hard. It's just there's a lot of tasks. There's a lot of little pieces of information that need to be done. And, you know, even today, the save system is working, but, you know, we're constantly finding places where we loaded up the game and some little piece of information was not saved correctly because I just, you know, for, forgot to save this one thing. So it's it's this process of going back and refining it and getting, getting all the pieces uh, saved off well. So I'll write a blog entry about it uh, in a bit and just and talk about the details of how the save system works. So the next question is Derek Reisdorf asks, pixel hunting or maze traversal? In your opinion, which is better or worse and why? Uh, I'll go first on this one. I th yeah, you know, I think I think I would probably say that pixel hunting is worse than uh, maze traversal. I think maze traversal, if you do the maze well and there's a lot of good hints and it's fun to traverse the maze it can be an enjoyable process where pixel hunting you're just causing somebody to wave the cursor over the screen to find this one pixel and i think that just can be irritating and i'm not really sure i see a game design use for pixel hunting where i think there is a you know a game design use for really good maze you guys agree with that or i could see a case like maybe one puzzle where you needed to do some pixel hunting in a specific location if it was if it matched the story but as a way to make the game take longer to solve or to mess with the player that's not very fun and same thing for mazes i mean i think i think in zach the feedback i had was that you know way after the fact that way too many mazes 
you know, the one thing I would probably change was reverse, you know, was reducing those. Although I've also heard from some people that they love them. So in this case, I would, you know, for a game I were designing now, I'd probably keep it to minimum and maybe just do it in one place. Yeah, the, the thing about pixel hunting is that I think it's important that the players are observant, that they're looking at the screen, and it's okay to hide things in the screen as long as players' ability to find them is that they're actually looking for them, not that they have to wave the cursor around. If there's just one little pixel that you would never know is actually something, I think that I think that's kind of unfair pixel hunting. And it's it's kind of why I've always objected to games where you can hit a key and all of the hot spots light up. Because I do think that removes a whole element of the game, which which isn't pixel hunting, but it's being observant and you know, highlighting everything. Just kind of removes the, the the necessity to be observant. So I think that's kind of a line between those two things in my mind. I mean, if there was a, a place where someone said, "Hey, I dropped a coin in this room somewhere in the corner and I can't find it," then it would kind of make sense to have to search carefully for it. Right. Also, if there was something which was not relevant to the gameplay, and this may be just some added Easter eggy kind of things, then it would be okay, I think, to hide them. I think it's okay as long as there's some methodology in the game that makes sense to the story that allows you to, to help find that. Like if you have a particular item that then in turn lets you find that, where, you know, whereas you don't get that feature unless you have something else that you, that's required relative to actually part of the, the game's story. All right, the next question is from Kazaris, and they are asking, is the current dull-looking verb interface going to make it to the final release? I think the answer to that question is yes. Yes, it is. I think I think we can polish a little more, make it a little more dull-looking than it is. You think it's too exciting? I think it's too exciting. I think you know, it should be like a dark gray and oh, on yeah. black. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a good point. Yeah, I you know I like the current interface. It's like I know it is kind of plain and it probably is a little bit dull, but you know I think it was very reminiscent of the interfaces. Yeah, you know, I've seen a lot of point and click adventures since then that that really try to dress up the interface. They try to put boxes around things or make them look more like buttons. And I just like having the plain words on the background. I think I'm very I'm just very partial to that. So, you know, it may change subtly, but I don't think it's going to change a lot for the final release of the game. And the next question is from RCM. Assume that we're not supposed to pronounce that name, just RCM. When designing (laughs) a puzzle, how do you decide if it's one of a fair difficulty? Do you rely on your own team's judgment or do you take into account feedback from testers, friends, family, etc.? Yeah, puzzle difficulty is a really tough one, you know, because for some people, a puzzle is really easy. And for other people, it's a, it's a really hard puzzle. You know, there's no there's no locked in stone metric for stuff. And I think you just kind of use your own judgment about whether you think it's good or not and bounce it off team members about whether it seems too hard. But the most important thing is when you get down to playtesting, you know, where where you're bringing people in and you're watching them play the game. And you're seeing, because then you're really seeing whether the puzzles are too hard and whether people are getting things or whether they're too easy. And until you've really done that playtest phase, I don't, I don't think you really know whether, you know, kind of the difficulty level of the puzzles. And that's why that playtest phase is just is so important uh, to do is to be able to understand that. And it's also not just watching one person play and they get stuck, and so you make it easier. It's if someone gets stuck, that might put up a red flag that this might be a problem and then you kind of watch 
to see if a bunch of other people get stuck at the same place. Yeah, that's I mean, that's a that's a big trap that you can fall into with playtesting in general, you know, is one person has a problem with something or one person loves something, you know, and you just immediately, you know, fix it or, you know, whatever. And, and you really have to look at a, a broad selection of people playing the game. I mean, we used to have a lot of issues with that, even around, you know, what Mark, you know, somebody in marketing thought, because you'd get like one negative opinion about something and everybody would want to have you change it immediately, which I think is a bad idea. Yeah. So Sometimes I've, had like a niggling thought about something and I kind of push it back and kind of say, well, maybe no one will notice or maybe it's okay. And then one or two people or one person I really trust makes the same comment out of the blue. And that might be enough for me to do something. And then there's sometimes where it's total surprise. You know, you, you were sure this worked and you find everyone just can't get through it or they don't understand it. And there's also a whole bunch of ways to tweak those, you know, just with different wording or a hint somewhere else in the game or uh, just making the text clear or whatever. So lots of tools. Yeah, playtesting's fun. I mean, I really enjoy the playtesting phase. You know, when you're watching people play the game and you're kind of seeing what, you know, what they're stuck on or what they're, you know, having a good time on. And, you know, playtesting's difficult to do because, you know, you need to be able to watch people and not say anything. You know, you have to sit there in silence while they fumble through your game and get completely lost. And one of the mistakes that people make with playtesting is is they is they do start to just jump in and give people hints while they're playing. And you know, you, you can't do that. You just need to sit back and watch. And you also have to be very careful about the questions you ask. You know, when you're asking after the playtest is done and you're asking questions, you know, make sure you're not asking leading questions of people, but but kind of trying to figure out what, you know, what the impressions that people had of the game or where they got stuck without actually saying, you know, yeah, did you hate this puzzle, right? You can't ask somebody if they hated the puzzle. You have to ask them what they thought of the puzzle. So it's it's, it's a fun process. I really enjoy it. Um, do you find that when you have, kind of a play tester i'll say a play tester somebody playing the game who's played a lot of adventure games it's a hugely different experience from like you know you have some friend who's never played maniac mansion before and they come or monkey island and they come and play that do you like find it to be kind of a new uh new information for you do you find it sort of being you know kind of a revelation well you need both types of testers when you're testing something play testers as opposed to bug testers but for playtesters, you know, you want to get a group of people who are big adventure game fans and have experience with playing adventure games because they're going to play something a little bit differently. But you also want to get people who have not played adventure games before and see how they deal with it because you really want the game to be enjoyable by both groups of people. So, you, you know, you have to make sure you have both of those groups represented correctly. For me, the, the hardest part is what Mon just described is not jumping in. My nature is to help I really want to say something. And it's just, it's, you know, the, the best way to do that for me is on the other side of a glass wall. So when I start screaming, no, push the other button or something, they won't hear it. See, I, th I think, I think my, my nature is not to be helpful. So <laughs> I, you know, I don't have a problem just sitting there and just watching somebody struggle and fumble uh, through something. <laughs> and I, I find it interesting because I, you know, I, I try to imagine, you know, what, what they're thinking and what's, what's happening and really good play testers are people who will verbalize what they're thinking. You know, like like my friend that was playing Maniac Mansion for the first time the other night, she was wonderful because she just she talked nonstop. 
through the whole thing. And she wasn't doing it for my benefit. She was she was just talking. And it was great because I could I could understand you know what puzzles she was having problems with and you know what parts of the game she was liking or not liking just because she was verbalizing so much. And that's the other thing you really want in testers because you know I've had testers who sit down and play the game and they're silent. You know you go through like a 45 minute play test and they don't say anything. So you're just you're you're trying to you know intuit what what it is they're having problems with because you don't want to really interrupt them and you don't want to talk and start asking questions. You just you just want to watch. So it's it's nice to have talkative play testers. Kind of like good sex, you know. Like <laughs> 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 I, I said, David, you're a sick man. <laughs> and I think we'll end the podcast there. <laughs> that's that's a whole different podcast that David does.